Welcome to Next Gen Movement, our sole mission to empower tomorrow's leaders by harnessing and unleashing collective wisdom, lessons and experiences of thought leaders within the community. All right, if the science behind creativity piques your interest, then you've probably heard of Alan Gannett. Alan, who's colloquially known as a lovable corgi father, that's debunked the myths of the creative genius and shows how we can start cultivating our creative side today has his hit selling book, The Creative, The Creative Curve. He's known for co-founding Accelerprise. It's an international B2B startup accelerator. It's being the CEO of TrackMaven, an enterprise big data analytics platform, which recently merged with Skyward, one of America's industry leading content marketing uh, services. So here we've got Alan today as our next chapter of Next Gen Movement, where we'll deep, deep, deep dive on his insights and get under the hood on his journey. Welcome, Alan. Hey guys, how are you doing? Um, by the way, if, for people who are watching, I, it's me and my giant bottle of vitamin C infused water. So you actually have two guests today. Yeah, it looks really fancy, actually. Mm -hmm. I can see things floating around in it. Yeah, you don't want to know what those are. <laughs> no worries. Let's get straight into this, man. So I've done a, like a little bit of research on creativity and noticed there's like a bit of a trend with like how it can be linked with vulnerability and the mm. uh, great Brene Brown, she has this quote and it says, uh, vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation, creativity and change. And for yourself as someone who is all in on the topic, who's immersed himself and got himself really curious. Um, I'd love to know what was, uh, the hardest thing you personally had to overcome, which allowed you to embrace your, your inner creative genius? I think for me, it's, it's actually the pretty common one, which is I think that for me and a lot of people, you engage in self-talk, right? You tell yourself stories about yourself, right? I'm not that creative or I'm not artistic or I'm not a painter. And um, you know, that's one of those things that I think at different times in people's lives, they can hopefully sort of push back on right? Hopefully the younger, the better. Some people never happens. Um, but fundamentally, I think looking at your life and questioning those things, I'll give you a great example, which is that I, um, as a young kid was really into writing and then I sort of like decided I wasn't good at it. Um, and in high school, I sort of drifted away from it and then sort of getting to college, writing more. I started writing some you know blog articles for the next web and fast company and sort of getting my groove back and realizing that writing was a craft or something I could learn or something I could hone, something I could get better at. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't say I'm a great writer now, but people seem to not hate what I write. And so I feel like that's something where I had stopped myself from unlocking something which, you know, became a super meaningful and really important outlet for me. And so I think it's about, it's about figuring out what is that self-talk? Why is it there? And how do you, how do you, I think by realizing where it's come from, it helps you, beat it back I'll just jump in Alan just like unpacking that a little bit more what what were some of the tools <laughs> what were some of the tools you used to actually go through that process because it's awesome to look back with perspective and say well this is kind of what I did but but actually um, I, I guess looking at that in a little bit more detail like how did you sort of get to a point where you could um, kind of dissect that self-talk because it's very difficult whilst you're in it. Yeah, so a few different things. I think um, one of them was, you know, getting to the point where as you get older, 
you sort of start to realize that, you know, you experience things like, you know, you go to college, you get better at something you thought you would be terrible at. And you start to sort of investigate these things and look at these things and start to sort of tease them back. I mean, eventually for me, like I'm a big believer in therapy. I think that's super helpful when it comes to self-talk. Um, but I think even if it's not that, it's really just around, and I hate the word meditation. I'll tell you why, because I think that everyone needs a meditative practice, which doesn't have to be meditation, right? I think meditation comes off as very specific, but really what people need is a meditative practice, which could be like, for me, it's going to the gym. Like I don't listen to music. I'm just thinking, I'm sort of processing through my thoughts, through my like, the garbage disposal in my brain and just working through this stuff for other people. It's like walking, commuting, long, hot showers. Like there's people who like, they always have their notepad right inside the shower because that's what they think. So I think what you have to do is find a meditative practice for yourself. It could also be literally meditating and start to think about these things, right? Like if you tell yourself, like, I'm not a great painter, like, why do you tell yourself that? Like what's convinced you of that? Was there a moment where you tried and you, you didn't succeed or someone told you you didn't succeed, right? Think about your moments of failure. Think about moments of criticism. We're very good at remembering those moments. Um, but I think you need to take the time out of your day, um, take that sort of silent time to really just think about that stuff and really just, you know, ponder it. So, um, Alan touched on curiosity. And I think that's super important. And I want to get your perspective on curiosity because I think that one of the downsides about the era that we live in and currently is it, quite results orientated. And I think a lot of times the process gets lost because we think so much about the result. And one of the biggest things that I witness around me in terms of creativity is that individuals that generally have it have a deep level of curiosity and they really want to explore. What's your, What's your take on curiosity in the relationship to creativity? So I'll take this on a few different levels. One, I agree. I think to be creative, you have to be curious, right? I think inherently a lot of the research I did, one of the findings I found that I thought was most sort of surprising was how important consumption was to the creative process, right? So if you're a writer, you better be reading tons and tons and tons of books. If you are a scientist, you have to be reading lots of primary research. And so that inherently, and we can talk about why consumption is important. There's a lot of sort of interesting neuroscience, but basically consumption is important. So curiosity is important because that feeds that need. Okay, that's interesting. Now the follow-up question then is, well, you know, is curiosity sort of a static thing? And I would argue that curiosity is very intertwined with confidence. I think everyone is born curious. Everyone was a child who was sort of fascinated by the world. But some people had parents who said, stop asking so many questions, right? Some people had teachers who said that. Some people had parents who would engage with those questions, who would support them. Some people grew up in communities that were more supportive of you know, being precocious. There was this famous study that was done in the 90s that was the cover of Time Magazine that said that um, when they tested creative potential in kindergartners, 85% of kindergartners tested creative genius levels of creative potential. Okay. Now, when you test high school seniors, it's like 15%. Mm. So, like, what happens? Well, mm. conditioning happens, right? Mm. How our society sort of um, tries to imprint young people, what it tells them is good, what it tells them is bad, which historically has been learn a white-collar you know, skill like accounting or doctor or lawyer, 
Um, and that's the sort of way to sort of build a good life for yourself, which is not necessarily about being curious. So um, yes, I think curiosity is essential, but I also think curiosity is something that again is something you can build and you can work on thinking about like, where is that self-talk coming from? Why am I scared to ask questions? Why am I scared to send a cold email to someone who I couldn't learn from, right? Why is that? That's a good answer. Yeah, it, it's always something from childhood, hey? Even with- I mean, The thing I thought was really interesting was I was um, interviewing this really famous producer and um, it didn't end up making the cut for the book, but I was talking to him about it. He was an older guy. And one of the things he told me this is sort of early on in my process was he's like, you have to ask people about their childhood. And I took that to heart. I started asking all the interviews I did. So for the book, I interviewed 25 um, sort of world-class creative achievers. These are like Michelin star chefs like Jose Andres. These are folks like... Um, Casey Jacob. Neistat was in there too. Yeah, Casey Neistat, um, um, you know, professional bro. Um, you know, Nina Jacobson, the producer of Crazy Rich Asians, The Hunger Games, David Rubenstein, a billionaire. And so I started asking all these people about their childhoods and every time their childhood was so much in there that drove them much later in life. So I think that's really interesting because one, it shows the impact of nurture, but two, it shows like the importance of parenting, right? I think the follow-up book to The Creative Curve would be a parenting book. I'm not going to write a parenting book because I don't have kids, so I don't feel qualified. But you know, one of the most common questions I get after the talk is, um, you know, I have a child, what should I do, right? And so I'd say there's um, really one core thing you can do. So the, the people who I interviewed fell into two buckets. That 80% came from a pretty broken home. And creativity became escape. And so that brokenness drove them to escape through something. As a parent, you don't want to intentionally create a broken home. Not great. Some parents do it, right? But not great. 20% though came from these like very loving, nuclear, very sort of like, um, these very like warm homes. And the thing that they did that I thought was interesting is that very early, they gave their children really, really strong encouragement and praise. And now there's this sort of movement right now against like sort of giving every kid a trophy and all this stuff. And yeah, I don't think you should tell 13 year olds or 15 year olds like they're going to be the next yo-yo moth they haven't started practicing yet but like you can tell your five-year-old who just picked up an instrument for the first time that he or she is great even when they suck right because it turns out the biggest thing that leads to talent and skill is time is compounding advantage yeah. and so what you want is you want your children to start learning creative skills as early as possible because think about it if you start playing the cello when you were five right? By the time you're 15, you've been practicing for 10 mm -hmm. years, 10 years versus if you started when you were 20, right? By the time you're 25, it'll only been five years. And that five-year-old has been practicing for 20 years. You're not going to catch up, right? So I think very early encouragement is incredibly important. Um, and it doesn't mean everyone gets a trophy. It just means like, don't be mean to your five-year-olds. Mm -hmm. That's, I've, it's kind of like I've seen with teaching a kid to, how to do a jigsaw puzzle, do from the inside out as opposed to do the typical corners, sides, and then go in and then work your way out because that helps with their lateral thinking as well. Going well, back there's all these interesting studies. So like one of the big misconceptions when it comes to our brains are, um, we think of our brains as very static, right? Um, but nothing in our body is static, right? Think in your bones, there's bone density, right? Things change. 
So your brain goes through something called neurogenesis, which is why we have neuroplasticity. So neuroplasticity is the idea that your brain changes over time. Neurogenesis is that every day you generate thousands of new brain cells. And kind of like working out at the gym, these brain cells go where they're needed. So if you have a certain part of your brain that's like really active, the brain cells go and attach there. If they're unused, they just sort of go away, right? So it's really a lot like going and working out at the gym. And the result is when they do these studies, what they find is that people who have done one skill over a long period of time, the part of their brain related to that actually gets larger. So like they did this study pre-Uber of taxicab drivers where they found that taxicab drivers, the longer they were a taxicab driver, the bigger the part of their brain that was tied to navigational skills became. Now what was really crazy was they compared it to bus drivers and they found there was no change in bus drivers because bus drivers drive the same route every single day, right? They're not actually working that skill. So this big misconception that our brains are these static things, I think drives a lot of the problems. We're like, oh, this is our smart child, this is our dumb child, this is our artistic child, this is our whatever child. When in reality, like, yeah, if you had a five-year-old practicing something, by the time they're 20, their brain is gonna be fundamentally, permanently changed by that behavior, right? And so, yeah, they now are talented, but it doesn't mean that talent is inaccessible. Mm. um, When you said before, like, how you overcame, like, that self-talk, what do you think drove that originally from, was there anything in child, from your childhood days that kind of stemmed that, that helped that conditioning? Um, in terms of getting conditioned like that or getting out of it? Um, in terms of, I mean, the negative self-talk really came from criticism, right? Being criticized as a child by whoever, right? Whether it's a teacher or a peer. Um, I mean, that's fundamentally where for most people, negative self-talk comes from, right? It's was there anything that comes to mind? Like anything that pinpoints that maybe it was a teacher that said something in particular that you actually remember? Um, I mean, I have lots of things, some of which I'd like rather not share, but, um, you know, one of the experiences I do remember was like, um, having a English teacher who told me, um, that, um, I fundamentally just like, it wasn't a great writer. And so then I worked really, really, really hard on a paper um, like really incredibly hard on a paper because I wanted to like prove this. And um, what she told me when I submitted the paper uh, was that I plagiarized it. And I didn't plagiarize it. Mm-hmm. But she was like, I know this is too good. You didn't write this, mm-hmm. right? And this was before like plagiarism checkers and all the shit. Mm-hmm. But like, no, didn't plagiarize it. And that was a very sort of like dark moment for me because it really hit my confidence of like, shit, like I'm just not, I guess I'm not a good writer. Like, you know, and the times I am good, like, is no one going to believe me? Like, this is crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And so fundamentally, I think that was, that was one example of it. Um, but, but I think there are moments, but I really think it's about sort of like the repeated patterns, right? Conditioning, yeah, there's sort of like, there's sort of pinpricks you can point to and think about. And I think that's useful. But a lot more of it is about the sort of little interactions, right, over and over again. That, that happened to a kid or a teenager or whoever, um, that sort of changes how they think about themselves. Oh, I want to um, fast forward a little bit, Alan, to kind of where, where the idea from, for you for, for Track Maven um, kind of stemmed from. And, and I guess my question is um, the, the, the vision. So obviously today, right, like you, you're kicking ass, you're, you're turning over, you know, 10, 10 mil 
plus probably. Um, but I, like, was 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 that? Um, I guess when, when you when you sort of had the idea to sort of go down that path, was that did, did you see it becoming this big so quickly? And and I guess what were some we of the challenges you faced? We had an interesting journey. I mean, our journey was the first three years were hyper growth, and then the second three years were sort of like low growth and then now sort of post-merger the combined company is growing really well because there's a one plus one equals you know four story let's call it um but for us i mean that was the interesting thing was basically the product came from a need i had as a marketer and then when we launched the product the first three years were just insane i mean we were just it was just flying off the proverbial shelves um and then it got a lot harder right and that was really interesting because you know as a first-time ceo one of the biggest sort of things you have going for you is that you're willing to challenge preconceived notions, preconceived markets. One of the other, um, sort of one of the biggest benefits, one of the biggest challenges as a first time CEO is that you don't know how all these markets necessarily interact or how they work, right? So like our market got much more crowded. When we started TrackMaven, there was 150 marketing tech companies. Um, last year, they do these big industry sort of analyst reports. There's 5,800. Right, so imagine that if you went from 150 vendors to 5,800, right, in six years, 150, like that's nuts. And so, as part of that, um, our market got very confusing, and people didn't know what was what. And you know, for us, I think the big decision that we made, I think looking back, was not the best decision. Was we made the product really, really focused. So we were like, how can we be the best analytics company possible? Like just focus on analytics versus other people in our market. We're like, we'll do analytics just okay, right? Or we'll do social media just okay and content marketing just okay, but we're going to do a lot of things. And it turns out that when there's a lot of fragmentation, rather than companies wanting to build the best of breed and buy the best of each tool, they actually just want to get something that does everything decently because that consolidation is more useful to them. And so that's why we did the merger, because fundamentally we realized that I made the wrong decision there, where it's not about going deep, it's about going wide, right? It's about having your systems interact and intersect. And so you know, that's a, that to me, I think that's a good metaphor for, as an entrepreneur, you know, typically, you know, it comes from like you identify some problem, right? So for me, it was identifying the market analytics back in 2012 was too damn hard, right? But that problem shifts and other people see that problem. It's not just about the initial problem, but it's about interacting and reacting to other people in that equation, right? So it, it's very, very dynamic. And when you do companies over a relatively long period of time, right, we did this for six and a half years before the merger, like it's not going to be the same thing on year five that's on year one, right? It's really important that you sort of get that. I think I think one of the, one of the advantages of you be you going deep versus broad is that you were an attractive merger or acquisition target for a firm that had gone wide because they would have needed your competence because you had that analytics capability, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. And that's a, I mean, it's a great, I mean, that's, you know, ultimately why like the mergers work because yeah. we are selling a lot more now because we have like a really strong analytics with really strong content and social. Yeah. But, you also have to think about like the trajectory of a company and like, what are you trying to do? And so I was, you know, for me, I was like, I wanted to build a big independent company and we just sort of mistakenly thought like, look, if we were able to grow this fast 
well, they should be able to, you know, if there's this many customers, there's no reason why there's not 20x this amount of customers. Like if yeah. you look at the path, if you look at the number of enterprises, you look at how much we're selling them for. And so, yeah, I think a lot of it's about intentionality, right? Like what are you trying to build? And that doesn't mean product. I mean, what type of company are you trying to build? Like what's the purpose of it? Is it just going to be a feature, right? Because that affects how you go to market, how you raise money, how you do all these things. So I think you have to be very conscious um, of those things going into and being very intentional. And then you might be very intentional, but still doesn't work because markets aren't all internal, right? There's yeah. external forces in your market. Yeah. Um, Alan, I have, I have a question that I, I wanted to ask you. Um, I'm a guy that really doesn't like hacks, this concept of shortcuts. And one of the reasons I like your message is because I believe that what you're saying is through open mind, a willingness and hard work effectively anyone can interact with creativity and we tend to live in a culture where we idolize gurus these people that have these burning bush kind of moments these you know eureka moments is your video in your video that eureka moment video and i just want to get your perspective on uh just i suppose today's society and the inclination to think that Oh, that guy's creative because he was born creative. Do you feel that's a, a real issue? Yeah, I mean, this is a really good question. And I, I, I like how you phrased it because one of the things I end my book with, and this is not ruining the ending because, you know, the book is about learning, but <laughs> I sort of end the book with this sort of pointing out this thing, which is that I'm not saying this is easy, right? Just because I'm saying you can interact with it, I'm actually saying the opposite of it's easy. The whole goal of the book is to lay out, try to help you, you know, figure out your path through this really complex thing, but it is figure outable. Um, so I like, I like that you picked up on that. Um, but the second point is that I actually think it's really interesting. I actually think what it is, is um, as humans, we have this sort of stasis, this inertia, this homeostasis where, you know, you see this, like we're, we're all like a little bit lazy on the inside. We're all like, I don't really want to answer that email now. Like I kind of want to watch the Netflix show. Yeah. Yeah, and even successful people, right? Like, and this is why you see so many driven people have sort of issues is because there's something driving them. So the thing that I think is interesting is um, I think we kind of subconsciously like the idea of the genius mm. because it means that, oh, I'm not that person. Mm. So like, why try? Mm. Like, why even try? Like, I'm not, I wasn't born. I'm not thinking these great ideas. Like, I don't even have a chance. <laughs> and... And I think that is fundamentally this very dangerous, very sort of Western view. Mm. Um, and it leads to a lot of people, I think, not tapping into their potential. It's why, right, you know, the kids who have these, you know, hit their potential, right, it, it's not surprising that a lot of them either had some force driving them through it that they were sort of escaping from, or they had parents who were very encouraging and had the resources to nurture it. Um, but, you know, there's no three-year-olds waking up you know, inventing, you know, <laughs> that's gold. Um, as we start to wrap things up, Alan, just cause I want to be respectful of time and that, um, on behalf of the next gen team, just really want to acknowledge and appreciate everything you do, man. You, all the, all the research that you've done, I think when you, you did about three years of research leading up to the book, um, and just, I think you've called people the normies. I think in that one interview, 
to give us a lot of hope, especially with the creativity. Um, we're all normies. Yeah, that's the thing. We're all, we're all normies. We're all equal. But just all the findings and the insights you have, um, highly appreciative. Was just learned a ton, especially with with this interview in itself. So just want Listen, to that. I'm just here for the Australian accent and the hydration. Like that's what's going on. So I'm glad it was helpful. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, would love to give you a plug. So for like next thirty seconds, what do you got coming up, man? What do you? What's, what's um, you know, right now it's just the book is coming out in more languages, which is fun. But um, if you haven't checked out the book yet, um thecreativecurve.com there's book trailers there's a sample there's all sorts of stuff and um other than that just sort of like right now i'm in you know sort of peace mode not not creating mode hibernation hibernation <laughs> that's a whole nother topic that's one of the big myths of creativity seriously that there's this myth that you have to always be productive but when i was interviewing these people like these great screenwriters and stuff are like Yo, I just wrote a movie script. I'm gonna take like six months off. Yeah, right. That's cool, right? Yeah. And so I think this idea of productivity and creativity often get confused, but that mm. maybe time. Yeah, another day. But uh, again, with Tove, um, I just really want to thank you, Alan. And and one thing we always uh, we always ask um, one question at each of our guests on the show. So if you could give uh, one piece of game changing advice to the next generation, what would that look like? I think the biggest thing would be to stop looking for something you're special at and decide what you want to be special in, right? <laughs> Intentional about that and then work at that and obsess with that mm-hmm. and become that crazy person who all they think about, talk about, sleep about is that. Mm-hmm. And I think what you'll find is that the more you specialize, the more time you spend, um, you will become actually special in that. It- Alan, that's a, that's a really interesting point because one of the things about self-talk is you can leverage it to your advantage, I find, to the extent that if you do something and you pick it up and start to do it obsessively, you start to identify with that particular function to the extent that your external world gives you feedback. Oh, you're good. Like for me, it's endurance running. I wasn't a runner until a year ago and I run every day and people are like, wow, you're really, really fast. You can run really, really far. And now I believe I'm a runner. And, and, and it wasn't because I went in thinking I was a runner. It was because I did the action every single day. And it, it's, it's, it's a really good point. You're hitting on something I think is fascinating. Um, James Clear talks about this in his book, Atomic Habits, which is really yes, good. And not this idea of, like identity, yep. right? And how like so much of our self-talk is wrapped up with our identity and who we identify with and how we identify and like humans have all these in-group sort of behavior tendencies, right? So like, um, you know, if you joined a, um, you know, a religious cult, for example, like you'd probably adopt a bunch of the behaviors that the cult has, even if you didn't fundamentally think those are yours, it's how you act. But we have this strong urge where we talk about sort of you're the average of your, you know, six closest friends. I don't know if that's scientifically valid at all, but I think the idea is valid, which is that we have in-group behavior. We try and act like the people around us. As a result, right, if, um, you know, you start running or spend more time with runners, you'll start to identify as a runner. Other people will identify you, and that builds this compounding thing. But I think it goes to this intentionality point. I'm, um, I once... Um, um, was told this sort of creepy older guy told me this this story, which I think was funny. And um, you know, he was like, "Look," 
And I don't know why he was telling me this, because I'm gay, but he was like, I guess it's gender non-specific, but he was like, if you want to date a model, the thing you have to do is you have to go and eat lunch at the restaurant next to the modeling agency. <laughs> and I always thought Good advice. that was like actually pretty wise, which is just this point of like, look, like you have to be intentional about where you put yourself, who you surround yourself with. And then a lot of the sort of luck and the stuff that sort of happens comes from mm. that. So I'm not even a big believer in like luck comes from the prepared. I think it's like luck comes to the intentional because if you're intentional about these things, like, yeah, like it's more likely going to happen. Right. So yeah, if you want to get lunch at that diner, like you're more likely to run into a model who happens to think you're charming. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks Alan. I really appreciate that. I might, I, if I was single, I'd definitely take that advice. <laughs> Awesome. All right, man, we'll uh, wrap things up, but thank you again for your time. Thanks, Alan. We're ending on the model story? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, we have everything. Don't worry about that. We love Bye, it. Bye, guys. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Alan.